welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. I want to begin our conversation today by thanking you as a congregation, uh, those present, those of us who are gathered, those of us who are scattered. You have been very faithful in a very difficult time. You have been very generous in this time. Your generosity and faithful giving in the area of tithes and offerings have given us the resources to not just survive, but to thrive during this time period and to meet the needs of many. Food has become a real issue in this country as jobs have been lost and uh, people find difficulty. We've been able to run a pantry that has fed hundreds, if not thousands, at this point in time and are continuing to run that until the need is no longer necessary in this area, as extreme as it is. And you've resourced that. Costa Rica is a country that was hard hit by this, and our friends, Miguel and Corinne down there, who minister to the least of these in the barrios down there, had to padlock the church by order of the government. Um, but they have continued to minister in the uh, um, barrios, and we've continued to resource them and equip them. Uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries lost their founder this past year, a, a terrible blow for them as an organization, for, for us as a people of believers. But they have structured themselves before this and are continuing to go forth with great energy, and we are continuing to support their work to spread the gospel and to get the believer to think and the thinker to believe. Um, Osborne continues to be a priority for us, that entire community, and we have resourced that area with uh, everything from uh, hand sanitizers early on and gloves and masks and a whole bunch of things. We've been involved with the Detroit Police Department with that. You've also been um, part of contributing to the peace in Detroit. Bishop Harris, who was here last week, we didn't go into all the detail, but has been significant in that process and your support of all of that. So you guys have done something incredible in the season. There are dozens, if not hundreds of stories, but certainly dozens that I cannot share here or over a live stream because they're personal to people. They're private in ways that you have ministered or enabled or equipped. So I thank you for your generosity. I want to thank you finally for something a little bit more personal. I want to thank you that you have not been an ordinary people. I came across something not too long ago that, that was talking, an article talking about how many of the people in the churches are just getting ornery and the pastors are having difficulty dealing with it. They had a list of things. They said they're weary, the accumulative toll of the pandemic. Some are just tired of it in general. They're confused. It's difficult to get a consistent story. Fearful. Um, the challenge is to fight the fear of the barrage of bad news. They feel like they've lost their church. In some ways, they, they have. It's not going to return the same way, probably. Weary of the cultural fights. Stressed because it's a presidential election season. Anybody? Okay, I've got both hands for that one. 
Um, I'm encouraged, though, because I understand that um, the day before the election that an asteroid is scheduled to hit the Earth, and I have hopes. <laughs> There's a list of other things, missing friends, negativity, outward focus, loss of different things, but here's what I've encountered. In talking with friends in the surrounding community who are pastors as well as across the country, I've been dismayed by the degree of which they have received um, negative emails, attacking emails, harsh emails, aimed at the leadership of these churches over decisions that have been made. Why did you open the church? Why did you close the church? Why are you requiring mass? Why aren't you requiring mass? Why are you addressing uh, um, race? Why aren't you addressing race? Why don't we stand for this? Why are that? And, and it's, it's been hurtful to these pastors, as strong as they are. And I, I look at that, and um, it disturbs me. I have to say um, that, that during this season of time, I have not received one negative, harsh, aggressively angry email. And starting next week, I'm actually going to um, access my account and turn it on. Um, <laughs> but until then, <laughs> no, the truth is, I haven't. Now, I've had those that have wanted to address issues, and, uh, and that's not to say that you're not allowed to raise real concerns or issues, but the tone of, of those communications have not been that way. Now, I'm, I'm sure we don't agree on everything. I'm sure there's undercurrents. Um, there is no human community on the planet that's fully in agreement with everything. But so far, the communications we and as a staff have received have been ones of encouragement, understanding, even appreciation for um, some of the things we've had to process and go through. And so I cannot tell you how much it's meant that you are not an ordinary people, <laughs> at least in an openly aggressive fashion. I appreciate that a lot. You can give yourselves a hand. That's good. I'm striving to not be ordinary myself, and it's a challenge for all of us. Um, there is a individual in um, one of the X-Men movies, and I don't know how many of you would have seen in this audience X-Men First Class, a few of you, some of you, okay. The rest of us will talk later, okay? If you know anything about the X-Men series, it's basically about mutants, individuals who have different powers or abilities, and um, they all, uh, they, they, they're identified by what those are. One of the characters in this is one who is, interestingly enough, named Darwin, and his ability is to adapt outwardly to any situation that's happening. If you try to hit him with a baseball bat, his skin hardens up and it deflects. Throw him into the water, he develops gills to swim and survive. So he adapts to any situation. There's um, another friend of his who can throw energy bolts and different things that they do. It's a sci-fi thing, and I understand that all of you are into it. Um, I, I, I find myself drawn at times to sci-fi, not fantasy, uh, and the other stuff that gets a little weirder, but the, the, the science aspect of it, it expands what could be possible in, in different things. And so at one point in time, they're encountering a bad group of mutants, the ones who want to damage and destroy the world while their group is one that wants to defend and do what's right. And they're just young people. So when the bad guys show up wiping out everyone else, um, Darwin steps up and addresses the, the baddest, the worst, the leader of it. And as he attempts to do it, he's doing it to distract so that his friend can energy bolt him. That's the formal language. And, and so as he does that and says, now the guy zaps him, but this enemy guy has a certain ability to, to 
handle the different things that are with. So he takes the energy ball. Instead of destroying him, he's able to take it. And he reaches out to Darwin, and he opens his mouth, and he places it inside him. And then the enemy walks away. And it's a sad part, because you see Darwin, there's a person who can adapt to any situation, but he cannot internalize. When this has been internalized, he can't. And you see him trying to adapt and change and do all the different things until finally he reaches out to his friends in his last motion, and then he turns completely blackened into ash, and you realize that he's died. Now, why do I bring to you a sci-fi movie that most of you have never seen into a Sunday morning service? Because Exodus talks about... No, it doesn't. Because it caught me, separate from our conversation today, how during this season of time, we are all needing to adapt to what's going on around us. And there are a lot of external things that are shaping how we operate and how we do things from mass to distancing to how our work scenes, parenting, everything has been different during this time. Students who haven't had high schools, weddings that have been done differently and limited, work situations that have changed dramatically, the stress upon parents, all these things that have taken place, and there's adaptations that we have to have, and that's appropriate. I want to caution you against internalizing some of the things that are around you, though, because when you do that, I think there's something in our spirit that dies. Now, I'm only going to take one section of this only, and it's not the primary, but it is one section. We have adapted to what we have here now with the mass, the distancing, etc. There are those that we've adapted to having the live streams. And I want to make it clear, there's a reason for the live stream. We're blessed with that right now. So if you're at home receiving this, um, that's, a, that's a blessing. And there's some of you that for a lengthy time that have been disabled or otherwise, we've been told that have not been able to join us in our services that are now being able to participate. So there's a plus with that. Some of that will continue on. But I'm watchful. I'm watchful as we go forward. What are the things that as we adapt that aren't just external issues, that don't touch our faith or touch our heart or touch our, our connections as a community. What are those things that can internalize that can ultimately destroy us? One of those, I do believe, is a failure to uh, fellowship and to gather. I think that if we lean into the live stream to the point that we either get so comfortable that we never return back into fellowship again, even when we are able to and the moment has passed, and some of you will have that experience, that there'll be something inside you of faith that will die. I think that there are those of us who are sitting even now on the live stream, and because of the difficulty of that, have started to disconnect or set up new patterns of adaptation, not just external, but that are internalizing. And so I want to caution and, and conjole and encourage us all, adapt as we need to, adjust as we need to, but don't let that internalize and destroy your faith or your identity as a believer or being part of a fellowship in a physical, dynamic fashion. I mentioned to our staff uh, a month ago or so, and I said, we are no longer in crisis management. Up until that time, we had been of the mindset that we're in a crisis, we need to do a lot of quick adjusting and, and, and manage until we return to normal. And I told them we are no longer, though, in that kind of a dynamic. We are now in what I referred to at that time to them as an adaptive leadership that there are some things that will have to be changed for good, that the period is going to be long enough that we need to adapt to these things and not just have something at the stopgap. Stop now, that came out of my own spirit, but as I was reviewing some things later, and just recently I came across Ronald Heifetz. He's a Harvard academic, one of the leading lights in the field of management, and author of a book entitled Leadership Without Easy Answers. 
He says this, in times of global crisis, one of the greatest fears we have in leadership is diagnostic. We can't distinguish between technical and adaptive challenges. That caught my attention. When it comes to technical challenges, we know the problem, we know the solution, and we know the resources required to implement the solution. The only question is around how do we implement an effective and efficient system? Technical problems respond very well to strong command and control systems, but adaptive challenges, he says, are very different. Adaptive challenges are when the issue is unknown, when we're struggling to realize how we can deal with it. There are no known or proven solutions, and now we're struggling to innovate and create in order to meet the new challenge. What we're facing with COVID-19 uh, and its impact on us is an adaptive one. It's not a technical one. And adaptive challenges are hard, and the solutions often require that our values, our culture, and even our practices obviously need to change. But we need to be watchful that those things, again, do not internalize and create something of a baseline within us that takes away not just our fellowship and our faith, but our basic humanity. So we are in this adaptive time, and we're learning with that. One of the more brilliant things I think that has been established has been even uh, something called a uh, um, study hall where we're providing for uh, children on, uh, during the week and it's a limited basis, but to relieve parents. There's other things we're trying to look to see how parents and marriages and all these things that are under pressure can work. Now, having said all of that, I want to now pivot at this point in time to the Scripture to begin a series that will carry on over the next period of time. Originally, I had hoped to bring this to you with um, some pictures and a personal dynamic that unfortunately I'm not able to. Many of you know that I was slated to take a sabbatical. This has been the anti-sabbatical. <laughs> I have found it exhausting and I have found it exhilarating, but that sabbatical was supposed to take me to Egypt and Jordan and Israel and to chart physically something I've never done before, and I haven't been to Egypt since I was 15 to chart the development of, e of Israel as a nation up through the development establishment in the time of Christ. Um, so I had hoped to be coming here today, this time and place, with pictures or video or personal things that I could show and give you better insight on. And perhaps that may happen, though it won't be next year, maybe the year after. Maybe I will look down from heaven at one point and look upon these things. Um, we've all had different things we dealt with. But I still, I feel compelled not because of that. In fact, I was going to shelve it. But as I approach this season and what we're dealing with, I feel like, like there's this aspect of Israel's journey where they um, have a, this drastic transformation of the life they knew for hundreds of years in Egypt to then this constant change and movement of things similar to what we have today. They even had plagues. In fact, they had 10 times more plagues than we did. <laughs> And so I'm going to want to walk you through this a bit and see if we can't glean something uh, through this season and through this time. I want to begin with Exodus chapter 4. We've never gone here before. And so let's begin with the very beginning. Uh, Moses has already had his experience in the burning bush. And they've come to the elders, it says, 
Moses and Aaron uh, brought together all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron told them everything. He was kind of the spokesman. Uh, um, Moses felt that he didn't present well. Um, it's a difficult thing to do speaking or communicate in front of a group. Aaron could do that and then for Moses. So they come and, and they also perform the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, I want you to understand that and, and see that phrase. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Exodus chapter 4, verses 29 through 31 when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. I want to assure you today, God has a concern about your situation. He has seen the struggles that you're going through. You need to hear, if nothing else, maybe that word today, that the Lord is concerned about you and to see what you're dealing with. So they bowed down and they worshiped. So they're off to a good start. They're kind of having a yearning back to God. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, look it, I want to um, have the people take a three-day, like, um, spiritual retreat into the desert to reconnect with God. Uh, there's some inference that the people had not been remembering or practicing the Sabbath, that they'd been working seven days a week for years with no notice of the Sabbath, no break, and so, which is interesting because that, that commandment is the only one that says remember. Remember the Sabbath day. They had forgotten that. And in the process, there's a part of them that had forgotten about God. And so Moses is saying, let's take a three-day retreat. Get a reestablishment in spirit and continue on with what's taking place. A simple request, you would think, of for a people that have been working seven days a week nonstop for what appears to be hundreds of years of time. However, they go to Pharaoh, and he doesn't quite see it that way. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. After this presentation to the leaders, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and they told him, this is what the Lord God Israel says. Let him go so that we hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Verse 2. Is this so? Is that so, retorted Pharaoh? And who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. I'm not going to let Israel go. The statement, who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him? I don't know him, and I will not let anybody go. Pharaoh denies, defies, and ultimately dismisses God. Now, I don't know what the present of people here are, but Pharaoh's concept of this was very specific. One of the basic principles of Egyptian religion is that their king, their Pharaoh, is a god. The Egyptians believed, according to one writer, quote, in the person of a pharaoh, a superhuman being had taken charge of the affairs of man. The creator himself had assumed kingly office on the day of creation, and pharaoh was his descendant and his successor. And so he views himself as God. And the, the, it's significant. Pharaoh uses the word for work that's referenced is the same, similar, very sounding to the word that God uses for worship, to go off and worship, and he, he reworks this. And so he considers the Hebrew to be his servant. They're to work for and serve him as a God, is what they believe. He even speaks as if he's a God. 
In one of these verses, he says, this is what the Lord, the Lord God of Israel says, is what Moses or Aaron says. Pharaoh uses the same phrase for himself, and he has his spokesman later say to the Israelite slaves, this is what Pharaoh says. So in verse 1, you have, thus saith the Lord. And in verse 2, you literally have, thus saith Pharaoh. So he views himself as a god. He doesn't recognize who says, and this is actually the sin of our generation and of our nation. We have raised ourselves up as gods. We determine what is right and what is wrong. We determine what we will do and who we will be. I'll decide, regardless of biology, of biology whether I'll be a female or a male. You, my creator, you don't decide that. I'll decide what I'm going to do in regards to this belief or that belief. We have literally set ourselves up uh, in a way that the poem Invictus has gone mad with. I am the captain of my fate. I'm the master of what I do. And we reject the idea that there's anyone who defines reality for us other than us. We even define our own truth. It's all subjective. and It's all tied in. Pharaoh says, I am God. There is none other. And I don't recognize or know who this is. Now, this morning, inevitably, as I said, there may be visitors in our midst. And perhaps the Lord isn't a real significant influence in your life. It's possible that you believe even that he is, but not that he's important. Well, one study I saw said even 50% of Christians, self-stated Christians, don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe in our lives we're denying him outright. Or maybe you have a relationship with God, but you have not been letting him actually direct your behavior. Regardless of where you're at in that spectrum, you're basically aligned in the same thinking and same process, not only as how this world is operating today, but also how specifically Pharaoh himself was operating in this time. And so as a result, he rejects what Moses is saying and instead, he says, let's work these people harder. And so he gives instructions out. And in Exodus chapter 5, verse 10, um, the slave drivers pass this instruction along. And the overseers, they go out and they say to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I'm not going to give you any more straw. Well, that just sounds devastating to us today, doesn't it? Nobody's going to give me any more straw. But it had meaning. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. Let's continue on. It'll become clear. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of, here it comes, bricks, yesterday or today as before? How many of you ever heard the term um, bricks without straw? Only a few of you. It's actually in the lexicon of our country as a whole, and it means basically to work harder with less. Up until this time, they'd be making bricks. It would be made out of clay. Clay, it's very fine particles. If you just make a clay brick, it tends to not dry all the way through, and it's not as strong. It will break easily. It will crumble significantly. And so what they would have is Pharaoh had given them large supplies of straw. When the straw is mixed with the clay, it allowed air to go inside it. It would allow it to dry more completely and more thorough, and it, it strengthened the structure. It was kind of the, the ancient rebar, okay, of that time. 
It made for a stronger, stronger brick that wouldn't break, wouldn't crumble, and maintain, and dried faster. Up until this time, Pharaoh had a crew evidently that gathered straw, put it here, and so here I am, I'm doing my job. I got my straw, I got my clay, let them dry. Let them dry. Let them dry, and they'll be done pretty quick, and we'll start building those pyramids and all the rest we've got to get into real quick, and it'll be good. He said, no more straw. Still in the same number of bricks. We're not changing your quota, but no more straw supplied. So now what I've got to do, if, if I make these things without it, it's going to crumble. They're going to break, and I'm going to have more difficulties. So now I've got to go around, and I've got to scrounge around, take all the time. This was quick and easy, and I had this. I could do this. It was tough seven days a week, but I'm getting it done, and it's good, and nobody's upset, and it's all good. Now I've got to go out and I've got to gather from other sources and ground and everything else straw. I've got to build up my stack here. Meanwhile, the assembly line, uh, there's a classic Lucy uh, um, uh, that you guys know with the chocolates. Okay, she's, it's going so fast that so finally she's stuffing in her mouth and down her shirts and everything else. I'm getting behind on the, on the, on the line here. And these guys beat me when I'm out of, out of tune. God had come with Moses and said, I'm going to free you up. We heard it. We saw the signs. We believed. We worshiped him. And now this? Where's the relief? Where's the freedom? Where's the... I was working seven days a week, but at least I... Now it's worse and more intense, and there's the beatings, and this is bad. And so here's what they do. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 21 they go to Moses and say, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh as officials have put a sword in the hand to kill us. In other words, they go to the leadership and said, what is this about? Ornery people going forward on an issue here. Now, Moses uses a different approach, but a lot of leaders, I think, understandably would react badly to it. They could get caught up in despair. They could get caught up in flashing back, and, and there could be a lot of conflict there. Instead, we find that after this exchange, that the passage goes on in verses 22 and 23, that Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? He doesn't try to explain or give excuses or cover up. So, well, I really think the grand plan is, I don't know. We were supposed to, this was, I don't know. He was open and transparent about it. He doesn't condemn them for their questioning. He goes to God. Why, Lord, have you brought this trouble on the people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to speak to Pharaoh in your name, he's brought trouble on the people, and you've not rescued your people at all. Is this how this is supposed to work? He goes to God. One suggestion I'd have for you, if you're finding yourself ornery, and, and, and we all have at different times, there's no problem with bringing that in a proper fashion to leadership. Sometimes there'll be things we haven't seen or thought of, and so that's totally appropriate. But if there's a real edge to it, if there's a real, uh, and, and, and it's not productive or constructive, maybe you should take it to God first. Just skip the middleman. We won't mind. There was somebody in this past season of time who's already done that. They found themselves, um, you know, concerned with an issue in an intense fashion and was being to judge things evidently in a way that was maybe not the best. I didn't hear about it till later. Instead, they went to God and God showed them a new way of looking at things that maintained all the relationships and, and, and did something in their life, I think, as well, too. Nothing wrong with taking it to leadership, even if it's ornery. We prefer it otherwise, but even if it is. But I would say take it to God first. So either way, Moses has got it now. He's stuck with it. 
And so he goes to God. And here's what God says in verse six, chapter 6, verses 2 and 5. God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, or the I am, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I didn't reveal my name to them, Yahweh to them. And I reaffirmed my covenant with them. And under its terms, I promised to give them the land of Canaan where they're living as, while they were living as foreigners there. You can be sure that I've heard the groans of the people of Israel. You can be sure who are now slaves to the Egyptians. I'm well aware of my covenant with them. And then he says this, Therefore say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression. Now before we go too far down that line, I need to have you take a peek at one thing uh, um, uh, mentally here. It's a little weird. He says, I am Yahweh, the Lord. Previously, I referred to the people, the people referred to me as El Shaddai, God Almighty. So he has now given something more intimate of who he is. Names have meaning. They reflect character, mission, even purpose of people in the Old Testament. Abraham meant father of great multitude. Eve means living, which is as the mother of living things is good. Jesus means savior. They were very, very important as to revealing that. So when he is saying, up until now, they've known me as Almighty, El Shaddai, a little scary. Now they're to know me deeply personal by my name, not just my traits and what I do, but by who I am. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. What is the meaning of this? One is this. This is extremely important to us today. One God stands alone in needing nothing and in being wholly self-sufficient. I am. All of us need someone. We were made that way. All of us in isolation are lost. In fact, the worst thing you can do is put a human being into isolation. And this season has done that more than anything else. For two weeks, I was isolated with my family, which was a good thing. We are good. We got together good. In fact, I have to admit, it's the most rest I've gotten in the last eight months. <laughs> but that sense of isolating, at least there was someone else with me that whole time. This is who we are and how we are designed. But God stands alone. He doesn't need anything. He is wholly self-sufficient and contained and doesn't need anything anyone. Therefore, when you see in the scripture the term Yahweh being used to imply an intimacy, in fact, a good example of this you can look at later is in Psalm 19. In the first six verses, he's talking about Elohim, another name for God, and his relationship to the material world. And then in verse 7, he shifts, and he begins to talk about Yahweh and his relationship with those who know him and who are covenant relationship with him. And so the fact that God introduces himself this time as Yahweh, that, that he's reaching for this intimacy, that we're saying he doesn't need us. But doesn't that make it all the more powerful that this being who doesn't, the only one in the universe that doesn't need anything or anyone, wants us? That he wants you? That he wants me? Needing nothing. We want and we need. This is a God who is so love-motivated to know us and to be in relationship with us that he came to earth as a human and took the entire punishment that we needed. There's something very powerful as the Israelites are trying to work through what's going into place here, that you have a God who is that intense, that's caring, that 
responsive. And so after all that and getting that point across, as we get into chapter 6 again with verses 6 and 8, he says, tell the people of Israel, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I will free you from your oppression, will rescue you from your slavery. I'll redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who's freed you from your oppression. And I'll bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you as your very own possession for I am the Lord. He says, I'm going to free you, and I'm going to redeem you. We are in a season right now, guys, that we don't have the freedom. We're bound. There's places we can't go, things we can't do, people we can't see. We've got masks. We've got other restrictions upon us. It seems like right now um, life is, is hard and, in fact, in many ways getting harder. I don't need to tell you that. You're experiencing it right now. You've lived this. And if you haven't fully yet, like uh, Bishop said last week, you will. Life is hard. We have bricks without straw. We're facing difficulty. We're dealing with discouragement. Some of us even led to, de- to despair on this. And as we process all of this out and, 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 and sitting at our stations here with the challenge of working with limited resources, equipped with less money, less time, dwindling energy, fewer help- helpers, Our workload may remain the same. Sometimes it even increases. More bricks, less straw. Our work, our marriages, our our parenting, our just daily living, all of that increasingly, we're under more and more pressure with that. And what we end up with is just these bricks that will crumble and will break so easily. And we find ourselves sitting sometimes in the midst, at the end of the day and in the darkness of the night, in the midst of broken bricks without the resources necessary to even continue on. And we want to say in that moment, where are you, God? Where is my freedom, the liberation you promised? All I see is the mindset and the reality of the slavery I'm in and the darkness that exists before me. In fact, that's told in, 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 in the next verse, after he says this to the people, He tells them this, but they refuse to listen anymore. They'd become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. Their external circumstances had penetrated inside their mind and inside their heart and had killed something inside of them of the capacity to understand it. They had internalized their slavery. It wasn't just about the outside now. It had penetrated into who their very identity was and how they viewed and saw themselves, and they saw no hope within any of that. Moses begins to campaign. And we'll go through this over the next couple of weeks, but as it, go, as it goes on, he demolishes, with God's help, every god of Egypt, including the Pharaoh. Almost all of those plagues reference a specific god of Egypt and was countering and, and deconstructing this. Until finally, at some point in time, these individuals who had struggled for so long who had forgotten the Sabbath and the God of their ancestors, who'd begun to be comfortable in their life of slavery, at some point in time, they drop the straw. They drop the clay. Broken bricks shatter, and they walk away forever from that life. Today, we find ourselves in circumstances that are difficult and challenging. We sit here in the midst of our situation 
We can question God. But in the same way that he looked upon those Israelites and said, I see your misery. I want to reveal myself to you. I have plans for you. There is going to be a redemption and there's going to be a freedom. There will be a day again, folks, where we will pack into this church and fellowship and you won't wear a mask unless we just ask you to because you just really got ugly during this whole time. And we wouldn't even then because the ugliest of us is still loved by us and we would never ask it. There'll be a time that you're going to shop without a mask on or without an intense paranoid aspect of washing. There's going to be a point in time when your spouse will finally leave the house and go to work. There's going to be a time when the political strife will settle. I'm still counting on the asteroid, but there'll be a time. In the meantime, we adapt. We change. We adjust to the outside and to things here. But the inside, the part of us that has a faith in God and a belief in the ultimate redemption that he has for each one of us as as individuals loved by him, this being who needs nothing and no one but wants you and wants me and reveals himself to us, that there be that thing within us that doesn't surrender, that doesn't give up, that waits upon the, the Lord even in the midst of the broken bricks that we find ourselves in, even in the midst of the difficulties. That is where we as a church stand. By the grace of God. And that's where we walk forward. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore how God took a bunch of people who had so internalized their slavery that they couldn't even see when the chains had been removed, how they come to know him, how they come to understand him, how they come to see themselves radically different, how they walk away from that and the journey they take to become a nation. And through that time and through that exploration, we'll not only explore who we are as a people, but we'll explore the character and the nature of this God who says, I am, but I want you. I am, but I desire to have a relationship with you, that you are that special to me, that important, that I see your misery, I see your circumstances. This morning, there is a song that I've asked Jake to play just the first verse in the chorus. And I'm going to ask you you to not stand. I'm going to ask you just to let it wash over you. It was written during the pandemic. It's one that's had a special meaning to us during this time. There's still one or two things I, I want to show you before we wrap up today. Really just two things. But as this is played, if you found yourself wavering in faith, if you found yourself making yourself your own God, if you find yourself just even broken in the midst of the bricks that lie around you and you don't think God hears or sees you, I would, I would ask during this time, call out to your God, the one who needs nothing but desires you. And let this be a time of reaffirming your faith, of reestablishing your trust and your expectations of him.
So Father, as we come before you, as we let the words of this song written in the time of stress and, and brokenness wash over us, I pray, Lord, that there'd be something that would rise up in our spirit, whether we are gathered in this room now, the several hundred of us that have gathered, or whether we are scattered, the hundreds of us around this community and around this country, Lord, right now, that your Holy Spirit would address us in this moment, bind up our wounds, grant us hope again. Let us rise up one more time and, and grab that lump of clay. And, 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 and if there's any straw we can gather to, to slap that together and continue on until you give us full and complete freedom, Lord, believing that that day will come, knowing that that day is going to come. I pray and ask, Lord, that, um, that we would be in that place where the Israelites first heard of you coming to them. They bowed down and they worshipped you. Later, as things got harder, they fell away for a moment of time. I pray, Lord, that as things get tough around us, that we wouldn't fall away, but we dig in deeper. That we would dig in deeper. That we would, as one of our speakers said, go harder. That we wouldn't give up in the midst of this. And I thank you, Lord, that, that not only are you with us in your spirit, but that we are part of a fellowship that we have others that we lean upon. And I thank you, Lord, for that as well, too. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, if you just put up that collage again. Uh, not Mel, I love him, but... <laughs> That's cool. First of all, God sees you where you're at. Even as you hold those bricks and even as the straw peters out, he sees you. He knows where you're at. You're not alone in that. But also to realize you're part of a fellowship. Even if you're scattered right now, you're part of a fellowship. A congregation is a very different thing than an audience. During this season, let's lean into each other. Let's adapt to whatever we need to adapt to. But don't let that inside you that is, that is in faith before God and in fellowship. And don't let that die. Hold that tight. And then one day, yeah, the mass will come off. The restrictions will be lifted. There'll be some things that'll be different. But freedom's going to come. Father, I thank you for this fellowship. I thank you, Lord, for your grace for the provision that you've made in this time. And I pray, Lord, as we walk forward into the fall that you'd guard us, protect us, guide us. I pray, Lord, that we'd continue to handle our social media responsibly. We'd continue to communicate in constructive and not destructive ways. That when we're able to, that we'd seize the opportunity to be together with one another. And for those who are unable, Lord, that you would still let them know that they are loved and they are known. So guide us, Lord. We lift up our nation to you. We pray, Lord, that you'd heal the wounds that are present. We lay all these things at the feet of the one who has been faithful to us. Strengthen us so that we can in return be faithful to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray this as your church. And a good way to end the service would be just with a good, strong amen. So I give it to you. God bless you. Welcome back. <laughs>